You know, I think the common theme was I'm in a bad place. I'm in a bad relationship, but I don't know how to get out of it. You know, so there was nothing that we can do. She was a big girl. She was, you know, 29 years old, 30 years old. And, you know, no matter how much you tell her that you don't like her boyfriend, um, she didn't want to hear it. But I mean, I didn't know that until now that it's not that she didn't want to leave, it's that she couldn't leave. Most of the people who are listening to this podcast right now might think that there are cracks in the system, in the way that laws are enforced. And after this story, we will be looking at perhaps even a wider gap. Let's talk about that. From an article that appeared in the journal Psychology of Violence, one in five cases of domestic violence, they're dismissed over the phone with the police. Okay, and then when those actually do turn into cases, three out of those five cases are actually investigated. And the ones that are investigated, almost one in three of those do not have charges filed against them. Now, that's a lot of math to follow, but what that comes down to is that less than 2% of domestic violence offenders ever receive any jail time at all. There's lots of room for error here. Lots of room. And this is going to be the center of today's episode. Hi, this is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would, and you're listening to the Because I Said I Would podcast, where we share the life stories that come from the promises that people make, the ones they keep, and even the broken ones. In today's episode, you're going to meet Debbie, who has devoted her life to advocating for the victims of stalking. She travels the country telling the story of her sister, Peggy, in hopes of strengthening law enforcement's response to stalking and, most importantly, preventing that crime in the first place. Her ultimate goal is to save lives. And this is her promise story. So my name is Debbie Riddle. I um, grew up in Pullen, Ohio, which is a very small town outside of Youngstown, Ohio, close to the PA border. Um, The oldest of four, so it was myself, my two younger sisters, and then my brother. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked in downtown Youngstown in a bank. I look back on my childhood as actually the perfect childhood. I loved where I grew up. I love that, you know, we were outside all the time. I love that we had great friends. I love that my parents had great friends. Um, You know, it was, it really was, it, it was a great place to grow up. It was perfect. And although there were four of them together, bonded as a family, there was one sibling, one sibling that stood out. Well, Peggy was always, I mean, just, she was a stunner. She, you know, all of us are brown hair, brown eyes, and Peggy was born blonde hair, blue eyes. So she was beautiful. I mean, and not only physically, but like spiritually. She was just a beautiful person with a beautiful smile. And I, one of our, our friends always says, Man, when she walked in to a room, she would light up the room. And it wasn't just the blonde hair and blue eyes. It was spiritually being a beautiful person. And as a big sister to three younger siblings, I guess this is where you can imagine Debbie's leadership skills coming into play and a foreshadowing, if you will, to tell of future events to come. Debbie's younger sister, Peggy, was about to need her help. But when I say help, uh, I mean protection. So Peggy was actually, um, you know, she was the one that was, I would say, the most free-spirited of everybody. So she had been in Italy for a while, 
had come back from Italy um, with the guy that she had been overseas with. They parted ways and Peggy ended up um, being out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so her next step um, after graduating from Kent State and, and being out working for a while was she wanted to pursue med school. So University of Albuquerque, New Mexico offered some classes that she was looking at. And that's, you know, that's where she met this gentleman, Patrick, who the first time I laid eyes on him, I did not, I didn't like him. I didn't feel comfortable with him. Um, I say this repeatedly when I talk, you know, to trust your gut instinct. If something isn't right and your gut's telling you that, it probably, it probably isn't right. Now is a good time to think back maybe when you met your sibling's boyfriend or girlfriend for the first time, or maybe you're a parent who's anticipated meeting your child's love for the first time and what that was like, you know, awkward hugs, a ton of interview style questions over a dinner table, lots of laughter, hopefully, and stories of how we met, and then a nod of approval once you see how happy he or she makes your son or daughter. Well, for Debbie, and her family, it was quite the opposite experience. Opposite in the fact that this person wasn't even invited. So, you know, it was in the fall and Peggy had just started classes and met this man. And, you know, she told me they had gone out a few times. It was, you know, absolutely nothing serious. Um, Peggy came home for Christmas you know, back from New Mexico to Ohio. And shortly after she arrived home, just before New Year's Eve, this Patrick Kennedy showed up on my mother's front porch. Now, I know it's hard to think of, but a world without the internet, a world without Google, a world without, you know, finding that information, you know, at your fingertips. And for this guy to figure out exactly where my mother lived, I think was the creepiest thing to me. And the second, thing to me what what was horrifying was he was standing in my mother's foyer saying I'm here to surprise Peggy for New Year's and I turned around and looked at Peggy and it was not a look of surprise or affection or happiness it was a very uncomfortable slightly horrified look that I saw and this surprise visit came with a lot of red flags something wasn't right about this man and Debbie knew it my other sister said like seriously like what <laughs> What is he doing here? And she, she sort of downplayed it. And, um, you know, he showed up at, he came to my other sister's New Year's Eve party and just like crossing line after line with a remark, you know, I said to my sister, it looks like I picked the wrong sister to sleep with. And we thought, oh, you know, we've, we've known you maybe for a minute and this is the language that you're using. And that's why I was like, it was, it was, Things like that, that I questioned what he was doing in her life. And she just, you know, it's like, well, you know, he just wanted to come visit. And it was, that was sort of the routine, you know, through their relationship that she was sort of making excuses and downplaying the behavior. Over the next three years, Patrick would assert his power, his control over Peggy through isolation, intimidation, and extremely disturbing behavior that would bleed into her life outside of their relationship making it very difficult to live in a happy way, a healthy way, or really kind of any way. Peggy was to come home to Cleveland for a friend's wedding and she wasn't gonna tell him, but he found out about it. So he went and canceled her flight and rebooked the trip with him and her on an airline to Cleveland. And then 
found out she, you know, she was staying in the same hotel with her family and that didn't work well. So he said, you're not staying with your family. We're staying across the street at another hotel. So that's when I really, really started to see like, this is just, it's just bad. He's a bad person and she needs to get out. But I, as a sibling, you can only tell your adult siblings so much. Peggy wasn't listening to what Debbie had to say. The warnings, the voice of reason, nothing was really getting through. So Debbie decided to tell Patrick exactly what was on her mind. When he came home and ruined Peggy's time at her friend's wedding, I had to say something. And we were standing in the foyer of this country club where this reception was taking place. And he was talking about something and I made a really snide mark about it. And he, the look he gave me was, I'll kill you. I'll kill you in your sleep. And I have never been so terrified of somebody who gave me a look like that. And I just, I walked away from him. Walked away with, from him with a burning stomach ache. It was only a matter of time before Peggy got on the same page as her sister. Peggy had enough. That wedding was the tipping point because that was in the fall of um, 2001. And in January of 02, she had said, I had enough. I had enough. And then, you know, he was a landscaper, worked for himself. So at one point he wasn't home and she packed up what she could and found a small apartment and moved out. Mm-hmm. And she moved from Albuquerque to another place in Albuquerque. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, she was at another place in Albuquerque at the time. Yeah. And obviously that takes a lot of courage that I I think most people don't uh, truly understand, you know, because I think just being on the outside of so many other people's situations, we are quick to not necessarily judge, but just make assumptions like, yeah, you just get up and move. Right. But it's, it's, it's not like that. And she, she moves away. Um, Did she have confidence that that was going to, did she think that that would be like, you know, enough? What we have to understand is that, um, you know, to separate from an abuser is very difficult. And not only is it difficult, it's really dangerous. So for her to get her things and pack up and physically move away and move out of this relationship, yes, was, you know, was incredibly brave and strong of her to do. But myself included, I don't think we thought this was the end of it because I just, knowing what this this guy, how he had acted for so long, you know, he's this isn't a loving relationship. It's a relationship based on power and control. And because now he was losing the power and control that he had over her for three years, this wasn't going to go well. I think we were hoping it was going to go well. And when she told me she was being stalked, Um, You know, I just, my advice was keep the police on top of it. And then it began. I asked Debbie, what was stalking like? What was life like for Peggy after she left her abuser? So stalking for her was the incessant phone calls because, you know, we have cell phones. We just don't have social media at the time. So it was phone calls around the clock. It was text messages. The language was very cyclical. The same language that he used on her for years. You know, to cut her down. To belittle her. To humiliate her. But then apologize. He would even show up at her work. And then he proposed to her, you know, at work with roses and a wedding ring. Okay, they're not even together. And she ignored him. And then obviously that didn't go over well. When you talk about stalking behavior, 
Number one, these behaviors aren't necessarily criminal. Like giving someone flowers. That's not criminal activity. Texting people. That is not criminal activity. You back up and you take a broader look at the behaviors. Peggy started to realize what's probably clear to you right now. It's stalking. And that is a crime. When we went to Florida in June of 02 for my brother's wedding, and Patrick knew where we would all be, he, um, you know, he left my brother a message and wished him well, and then he got on a plane and flew to Youngstown, Ohio, and spray-painted PK as a whore. That's Peggy's initials. On my mother's garage door. They filed a police report in the city of Poland in Ohio, and then had that report sent out to Albuquerque, but three days later, something would happen to Peggy's new boyfriend. You see, she had met a man named Mark, and they were dating. Patrick went to his house, Mark's house, opened a gas line, and burned off the back of the building. And so the police were saying it was it was arson, and they didn't know who did it, and Peggy and Mark are saying, you know, this is arson in relation to a stalking case. So from there, Peggy files for an order of protection against Patrick, but this is a crazy part. Patrick files an order of protection against Peggy. You know, they walked out of the courthouse and he said, you know, I told you not to F with me. So, well, what happened after the, the roses and the, um, the wedding ring? You know, she ignored that. So he went and found a picture of Peggy that, you know, she had left behind when they lived together. And he made an eight and a half by 11 flyer where he wrote on it, I'm a slut, I'm a whore, I've had herpes, I'd love to give it to you, and I'd love to sleep with you. And he put Peggy's cell phone number on it. And he made, you know, 300 copies, put them all through the city of Albuquerque, and definitely in places where he thought for certain she would see them. And so Peggy got a hold of the flyer, took her cell phone, her cell phone records, you know, the guy that she had begun dating. He was now being stalked by Patrick, and so they took all this to the police department, and you know, said, this has got to stop, this guy is stalking me. And their answer was, you know, we can't do anything about a piece of paper. Come back to us when something happens. 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 In our society, we turn to the police to intervene when danger is near. So how in the world do you react to this? How do you cope with that lack of support? How do you react to it? when those who are paid to protect you don't. Oh, so, so, I mean, she was frustrated. I was angry. I'm like, we don't want it. You don't want to wait for something else to happen because when something else happens, most of the time, it's a murder. We put, I put, she put her faith in our criminal justice system. And I feel like that, unfortunately, was our biggest mistake. A growing stack of solid evidence of stalking, we're talking voicemails, flyers, text messages, but also a major part, a major part of this was that Patrick had actually done this before. And it's because he did it before. He did it to his ex-wife. When his ex-wife filed for divorce, um, you know, he stalked her relentlessly, abused her, and she filed numerous reports in the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, but the last one she filed, and it's frightening to read it, because she wrote on there, he's not gonna be happy until he kills me or kills our daughter. He's stalking me. 
And the only reason why it stopped with her is because Patrick met Peggy. So with all this evidence in hand and fed up from this exhausting and terrifying pursuit to stop Patrick, Peggy, she just left town. So Peggy was in pharmaceutical sales, so she was able to live pretty much anywhere. Um, what they did do is because Peggy had filed stocking charges and they were waiting for a stocking trial. So this was in August of 2002 um, and the trial was delayed. So Peggy and Mark thought it's probably best because let's get you out of Albuquerque, um, move you, you know, move you out to California. She got an apartment out there until the stocking trial because, you know, Patrick wasn't in jail. So until that trial was going to take place, he was able to do whatever he wanted to. So it was best to get her out of harm's way. And that is incredibly reasonable advice, because when you look at the statistics from the National Center of Victims of Crime, they published that 54% of femicide victims, so these are women who have died of homicide, reported stalking to the police before they were killed by their stalkers. That statistic should shout out to us that we should take these reports seriously. Now, I want to take a pause just a minute to talk about what's actually happening here. I spoke with Debbie on the phone. I asked a little more about Peggy's situation in terms specifically of the criminal justice system and how much more difficult it made things for Peggy as opposed to actually making them easier. I guess the the timeliness of a trial, because obviously in the United States Constitution, you, you have the right to a speedy trial, which I, yeah. I, I, is, is, is to, to, in some ways, defend the, the, the accused. Um, but that that's, the speed of the trial has so many effects on incidences like these and, and so many others in our country. And, and it's not fast at all. You know, speedy no. is not a word you could use anymore, but, and which we should deem it to be unconstitutional. But... I just want to get your your perspective on that. Obviously, with the foundation of of this experience, how do you feel like that affects families and situations going through these legal and, and safety concerns? Well, the frightening thing about this with Peggy's trial is because he was, you know, the offender wasn't locked up and was able to do whatever he wanted to do. Is that it put not only Peggy but our entire family at risk because we really didn't know you know, when he was going to show up, if he would show up. His attorney wanted Peggy's California address. Actually, he didn't even know she was in California, but he wanted her most current address on the documents to make him official. When you do things like this, there is no protection for the victim. There's none. They are a sitting duck. Here's an actual timeline of events as Debbie describes it. So she was, she left him in January of 02 and began, you know, becoming a stalking victim. The fire was in June of 02 and shortly after she filed stalking charges and she moved to um, California in August of 2002. So we're about, eight, we're about eight months in with a promise of a speedy trial that got pushed to October. And that's now we know that it's gonna be pushed back all the way to January. So there's a, there's a whole lot of time for error. At this point, Peggy is living in California. Correction, she is hiding in California. That didn't seem to stop Patrick. You know, he really tried, he tried really, really hard 
um, to track her down. He, um, when he didn't, when he couldn't find her, when she was out of the city of Albuquerque, he found her moving company. I'm not really sure how he found out who moved her, and he posed as a police officer, and you know, stated this fictitious name and said he had found some of Miss Clinky's stolen goods, and he wanted her current address. Well, the woman at the moving company said, "I can't give you that information. You know, please bring her things into us, and we'll get them to her." And he said, "Well, never mind." So of course this girl calls my sister and Peggy said, I don't, there is no such thing as my stolen goods anywhere. She said, that's Patrick Kennedy, he's my stalker. So that didn't work. And he started, you know, he started working with a private investigator um, through email, did not give the private investigator any money, but the private investigator gave him a street name. So then he decides, to pose as a private investigator and have business cards made. And he starts flying out to San Jose and casing all these different neighborhoods looking for her. So he, um, you know, he's doing all these different things. He can't find her and, you know, he turns, he can't do anything. So he's gonna turn the heat up on the family. So he calls, you know, Thanksgiving and he threatens to kill her. And, you know, she's out in Albuquerque, not in Ohio. So, you know, we, we make the file a police report with a death threat phone call. And so that, I mean, nothing really came of that. That just, that sat in the police department. And, you know, Peggy said, call the DA and tell him that you got this you know, phone call. So I called and left a message. And when he got a hold of Peggy the next day, he heard Peggy's voice and started laughing at her and went, oh my God, you're still alive. You know, Peggy said to him, Are you, is it going to, is a bullet to my head going to make you realize how serious this is? So that was a dead end. So two weeks later, again, at my mother's house, she receives a box filled with family photos that Peggy had left behind and they were in a Ziploc bag. Um, somebody had poured water in and sealed them. And, you know, while that's nothing illegal, we filed a police report, we took pictures of it, but the postmark on the box said San Jose, California. And that to me said, he's getting closer. He's getting closer to find her. So we really, we really, really need to somehow, you know, protect her and keep her safe. It was during Christmas that Peggy went back to Ohio to be with her family. And they cheered her on. They supported her. She only had three weeks until the trial date, which was on January 25th. But one week, before that trial date, he finds her. So on Saturday morning, January 18th, 2003, Peggy is getting things ready at her condo and she's getting ready to meet a friend for coffee. And as she walks into her garage, um, Patrick was in there hiding, waiting for her. So what had happened truly is he did find a UPS driver um, who he cornered and gave him his business card and shown Peggy's picture and, you know, said, hey, I just, this is just a client. I need to pick up a check from her. And, you know, the UPS driver hemmed and hawed about releasing that information and said, no, I really can't give that to you. And uh, Patrick said, you know, just just think about it because I just, I just have to get this check. He was really, really good. So at the end of the day, the UPS driver caved. Um, Patrick hid in her garage. She walked out into the garage. He walked in. He had um, a handgun and duct tape with him when he walked in. So what he did is he beat her over the head 
with the butt of the gun and threw her up against her kitchen wall. Uh, she was bleeding profusely. He put duct tape around her wrist behind her back so she wasn't going to break free and then put duct tape across her mouth so, you know, nobody was going to be able to hear her scream. So shortly after that, Peggy was able to get the tape off of her wrist and her poor neighbor, Rachel, was standing um, out front ringing the doorbell and Peggy walked out screaming, just covered, covered in blood. I can't even imagine what Rachel witnessed that day. And Peggy said, Patrick Kennedy's here. He's found me. He's going to kill me. And they ran to Rachel's condo. They were able to lock the doors and barricade themselves in the bedroom. They made um, a 911 call. And while they were on the phone with dispatch, Patrick broke in and made his way upstairs and found Peggy in the bedroom. And at this point, he didn't know that Rachel was with her. Rachel was actually hiding in the back of the closet. So um, they're in this they're in this condo, and the, the police arrive. And um, you know, Peggy told that officer, "Don't you dare open the door. If you open the door, he's going to kill me." And, you know, the officer said to Peggy, look, let's just, let's talk about you being safe. And, you know, they were trying to talk to Patrick and to divert his attention off Peggy. And he wasn't having it. Um, and Peggy, in a very calm, methodical way, said, look, officer, I need you to call my mother in Ohio and tell her I love her. And the officer said, Peggy, let's not talk like that. And Peggy said, I also need you to get a hold of my sister who's pregnant and tell her to name her baby after me. And I need you to get a hold of my niece, Abby, who's been sick all winter and let her know that she'll have a guardian angel watching over her in heaven. And within minutes of that, uh, Patrick realized that Rachel was in the back of this closet and he put the gun down and he told Rachel, get the hell out of this room. And as Rachel started to leave, uh, Patrick picked the gun back up and tried to shoot the officer outside of the door. And the minute the door shut, um, he shot Peggy in the back of the head. And then he turned the gun on himself and shot himself. The officers went in immediately and, you know, got Peggy out, but she died on her front yard, you know, minutes later. And Patrick was dead at the scene. When officers showed up at Debbie's doorstep to tell her the news, I, I know this doesn't sound right. Uh, it may sound insensitive. That's not what it's supposed to mean, but Debbie was not surprised. Yeah, so I was at my mom's and it was like 10 o'clock at night and the doorbell rang, which I thought was odd for, cause you know, people walked in and out of the houses all the time. So I thought it was just strange that the doorbell would ring and, I walked down my mom's foyer and saw two Poland police officers and I opened the door and I said to them, just tell me this, did Patrick Kennedy kill my sister? And I was right. Um, you know, let the officers in the house, had to witness, had to witness them telling my mother. I had to call my sister. I had to call my neighbor, my mom's good friend to tell her to get down, to come to the house. I had to call my brother in Florida. Um, you know, and things that over the next few days just continued to unravel, you know, talking to police officers out in California, 
um, eventually talking to Rachel, uh, talking to Peggy's neighbors, just learning, learning everything that had happened that day. Um, what was your, was it, was it shock? Was it anger? Was it immediate sadness? Is uh, maybe, I, I literally don't know how. I think you hit on go. everything, yeah. you know, like I can't, you know, people say, well, how did you do this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I cannot, I cannot remember those days, but I do the, the thing burning in my soul was this is so wrong. This should have never, this girl should have never died. You know, she did everything right. She documented everything. She was in touch with law enforcement. She went for the order of protection. I don't understand how this ended the way it did. And that's what sort of turned the tables for me on, well, I can sit here and be sad and wallow in self-pity and, you know, hate everybody because that's really an easy way to, that's an easy way to go. Or I can take this and I can do something with it and I'll tell you what at that time I could not tell you what that even remotely looked like I just knew what I witnessed was wrong and somehow it had to be fixed and this is how Debbie's promise was born there is just a point in someone's life where you are just tired of it you cannot take one more minute of the world being as it is you must change it and among many promises Debbie plans to make, there is one very important commitment she has made, and in honor of her sister Peggy. Well, there's so many, but I would stick with what what I what I try to do, you know, daily is I promise to keep stalking victims safe. Now I do a lot of public speaking where I come and tell Peggy's story. Um, you know, people have said to me, no, you can show me all the statistics. I can read all the fatality reports. I can do all these assessments. But having a person up there tell a story about what happened to them makes a huge, huge difference. So it's not only just bringing the topic of stalking to the forefront. It's, you know, talking about Peggy's cases, talking about things that fell through the cracks. I work on college campuses a lot where they know everything. All the college do, they, oh yeah, we know what stalking is. We use the word, you know, I'm stalking you on Facebook, I'm stalking you in the library. And then we go through this um, slide presentation and talk and they are shocked. And it's the look of, I guess I really didn't know what stalking is. So it's this huge awareness component because while we have to look at what our criminal justice system is doing, we also have a large pool of victims out there that they don't, they can't define what's happening to them. They can't name what's happening to them. And if this is happening, they're never ever gonna report it nor are they gonna seek help. So that's a large portion of what I'm doing. In 2004, a year after Peggy's death, the National Center of Victims of Crime launched a National Stalking Awareness Month to increase the public's understanding of the crime of stalking. National Stalking Awareness Month emerged in response to Debbie's efforts to improve law enforcement's response to stalking and to save lives. Debbie's efforts also resulted in a concurrent congressional resolution on stalking, a national program on Lifetime Television hosted by Aaron Brockovich, featuring Peggy's story, a Lifetime video with the title, Stalking, Real Fear, Real Crime, to train law enforcement about stalking. The videotape is being distributed free to police departments around the country with the help of Mark Sparks, that's Peggy's boyfriend at the time of her murder, 
Just months after Peggy's death, the National Center of Victims of Crime, in partnership with Representative Heather Wilson from New Mexico and Lifetime Television, told Peggy's story at a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill, which focused on strengthening law enforcement's response to this crime. And in 2011, the White House, under President Obama, issued the first presidential proclamation on National Stalking Awareness Month, stressing the millions affected by this crime and the devastation it causes on families across the country. Debbie and Mark have taken their grief and put it to action, creating a vision for change within law enforcement as it pertains to domestic abuse and stalking. And at a personal level, for myself, when I listen to this story, it makes me, I guess it makes me angry too, because I don't want to live in a world where this kind of thing happens. And, 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 and if I have to live in a world where it does happen, I don't want to live in a world where then it happens, but then it's ignored. And so it makes you think of accountability because who truly is accountable in this situation? I asked Debbie about how accountable the police are in this equation. I hold them 100% responsible for Peggy's death. Because, yes, while Patrick was the one that, you know, truly pulled the gun, that law enforcement agency knew exactly what they were dealing with. So they had plenty of police reports from his wife, previous wife, to pull. Um, you know, there was many other things that they could have done to protect my sister that they did not do. So, yes, accountability, there was no, I mean, they washed their hands of this case and, and moved on. There's a quote, the strongest steel is forged in the hottest fire. Debbie took the pain from her sister's death and did not allow it to just be some feeling, a memory, a hope. She put it to action, she made a difference, and she changed the world in the crime of stalking. Well, and it was, you know, in looking back, it was like, I, I don't want anybody, even my worst enemy, I don't want anybody to ever have to experience the pain of this. It's awful. And if I can, if I can, you know, do something to stop another family from feeling this way or stop another, you know, Peggy Clinky incident from happening, then I will. I mean, it took a whole lot of research and reaching out to different people, but it's it really truly is what I set out to do. And I think that's how I dealt with my grief. Thank you so much for listening. This is Alex Sheen, founder of Because I Said I Would. This episode, this thought, this story behind Peggy, behind Debbie, and the memory of her sister, it makes us think perhaps about relationships and what it means to have a relationship. What are healthy boundaries? Maybe this episode in its extremity makes it very clear that, uh, of course, this activity, what happened in this situation is unacceptable. But my question is, on that scale, at what point when you slide the circumstances, the behaviors over, at what point do we enter a gray area where it's unhealthy relationship becomes healthy? Where do you draw the line? That is very hard to say. But it is a line that we need to pay attention to, that we need to understand when we ourselves are out of control. And that's something that Debbie even has talked about and I'm going to let her take it away with some thoughts on what it means to prevent this thought of such an unhealthy relationship in the first place and other things that really can make a difference in this cause against stalking. 
Well, if you start at the ground level, it's that healthy relationship. Talking to our young people about what healthy relationships are. Texting someone 500 times a day is not healthy. Um, pursuing, pursuing until they give in. That's that's not a healthy relationship. Um, you know, get a speaker to your school. Have these have these speakers come to your, you know, your elementaries and junior highs and high schools and have these conversations. I mean, we talk about the dangers of social media and cell phones, but we don't talk about how also these behaviors can lead to unhealthy relationship behaviors. There's a huge disconnect right there. Well, the organization I work with right now is SPARK. So Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center. And they are stalkingawareness.org is their website. They are a wealth of information. That's where you can, you know, you know, if you think you might be being stalked, but you're not sure, there's, there's assessments on there that they can look at. There's literature to read it. And sometimes looking at it in black and white is what will turn a light on in a victim's head rather than listening to her friends babble on about it. I can't reiterate enough when I talk to victims is safety plan. If, if for anything that you're going to go to the Spark website for or work with an advocate, it's to safety plan. Don't, like I said, don't try to do this yourself. Keep yourself safe because like I said, I think one of our big faults was putting all our trust in the criminal justice system and they did not keep my sister safe. That's our episode for today. And if you like the Because I Said It Would podcast and you're interested in actually getting better at keeping promises, we actually have a new YouTube series coming out. So check out youtube.com slash because I said I would. There's personal development videos help with getting better at things like accountability, self-control, honesty. Our animation team has been working hard on that and I hope you check it out. And if you like the story side of Because I Said I Would, well, the Because I Said I Would book is available on Amazon and directly with us uh, through becausesaidiwould.com slash the book. 100% of the proceeds actually go back to uh, the charity, our 501c3 nonprofit. That is what Because I Said I Would is. We have character education programs in schools and in prisons, chapters of volunteers, and, uh, and, and our efforts are beyond stories, hopefully, to make an actual impact in communities around the United States and hopefully the world. Also just wanted to mention that this is a listener supported podcast. So if you would like to donate to see this type of content and make it to the rest of the world, please check out because I said I would.com slash donate. Did you like this episode? Well, you know, you can check out all of the episodes in this podcast series at because I said I would.com slash the podcast, but obviously everyone's not going to go to our website. So it's good that we have it on Apple podcasts and most other platforms where podcasts are found. If you wouldn't mind, uh, could you review us there? Give us a rating goes a long way. A special thanks to producer, Julie Fink, Dave Douglas, our audio engineer, and I am your host, Alex Sheen until next time. Remember, a single promise can change a life forever. And behind every promise, there is a story.